Uh, good morning. We'd like to extend a very warm welcome to those who are here at the East Campus, certainly all of our college students and their families on this Student Sunday. We want to extend a welcome to those who may be at West or joining us on our vast online uh, community. We're glad to have you with us from all over the country and all over the world coming into your living rooms or wherever you're watching. We hope you can join us here at the East Campus in person or at one of our campuses as soon as possible. Um, so good to have you with us. Here it is, Student Sunday, August of 1989. I found myself in the position where you are. One of the high school students said, now Skid, let me get this right. You went to college in the late 1900s, right? And I said it was 1989, but suddenly I'm a Benjamin Franklin all of a sudden. I, I never quite thought about that. It was the late 1900s. But I went to Memphis from Cleveland, Tennessee, went to a small church in Cleveland, about 240, 50 people on a good day. And I went to a church, the Highland Street Church in Memphis, where there were thousands of people, oh, about 1,500 people. I'd never been to a church that large. And I sat there, did not know anybody in the room, but midway through the service, I wanted to stand up and just let everyone know. Attention, everyone. Attention. I got myself here this morning all by myself. I ironed my clothes. I drove myself here. I'm here, and my mom did not even tell me, but I'm, somehow I would know she would know if I was not. And so here I am. Nobody probably was all that excited to know that, but we're really, really thrilled that you're here. I'm looking here because a lot of you are here, but you're scattered all over. Some students going to school here, some about to go and leave Murfreesboro and go to college in other places, and we're so, so honored to have you with us. So I'm not just going to speak to students in college, and I'm not just going to speak to students in middle school or high school. Um, for those of you that may be visiting, our normal pulpit minister is actually out of town today, so me being here, church, is, 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 is not bad news, although that's a matter for some debate, I would imagine. But David is out of town, he is traveling, and so I'm filling in this morning and honored to be with you. But I'm not just speaking to students on this Student Sunday, but everybody else can eavesdrop because this is going to be something that maybe we all need to hear. Just this past uh, two Sundays ago, we welcomed 45 new 7th graders for what we call 7-Up Sunday. We give them a 7-Up bottle. We welcome them into the 7th grade. We care about students at all ages, at all levels. Then just this past Wednesday, we invited every principal, assistant principal, and vice principal in Rutherford County to join us at True North to be prayed over by the students from their schools who are in the NBYG. And so about 15 to 20 principals showed up. And some had a few students, and some had a lot of students, but here they all showed up, and it was such an encouraging Sunday, uh, on Wednesday rather, to have these principals, administrators from all over the county to be here. And we competed for the Principal's Cup, which is a trophy that's very, very nice and looks nothing like a, an ice bucket from a hotel that was bought at a yard sale years ago, so ignore that. <laughs> but it's full of strawberry candies that were given out by my uh, elementary principal, Dr. Ann Colbreth back in Cleveland, Tennessee, and we love those candies, so they still make those strawberry candies. I fill them up, and this year it was won by our very own Robert Sane. Uh, Dr. Sane is right here. Congratulations. Yeah. I, I even shared that at first service, if he's here, he will stand up uninvited and take a, a bow. Um, congratulations. So everyone vies for that cup, and we're so honored to, to have so many principals join us. We care about students at, of all ages. The verse that we talked about last week when David interviewed uh, Amy, Sane, and myself is up above the stage in the filling station, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2. That verse is important. You can go back and look that one up. But this morning, uh, to our students, we want to share a different passage from the same chapter, same book, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 22. 
And it's three words that unless you take these words to heart, college students, you probably aren't going to make it. But first, I want to tell you a story. This is a sheet of paper of the 10th grade class that has just come in. I teach the 10th graders on Sunday mornings. And so every year I get a roll, like all of our teachers, and I go down the roll. And I tell our students, if we get five in a row that are here, we'll get donuts the next Sunday. If we get five in a row. Because it's very hard to get five students that show up in a row on this massive list of 35 to 40 students. It was 12 years ago. There was a name on that list. A young lady whose name was Lacey. I'd never, I'd never met her and, her, and she was never in class. And I would call the roll. We'd have one person here, two people here, three people here. And I'd call Lacey's name and we'd have to start back over because we'd have to go back to one again. And that happened week after week until finally somebody said, Oh, why do you keep calling her name? Can't you just take her name off the roll? And I'm like, No, I can't take her name off the roll because I know that she's a member of our group. I just haven't met her. But she's important. And I kept calling the name and kept calling the name, and she was never there. And they would say, oh, just take the name off the roll. We want to get donuts. One weekday, I was at Walmart or some store, and I'm talking about North Boulevard. A young girl in front of me turns around and says, did you say North Boulevard? And I said, yes. And she says, well, that's where my grandmother takes me to church. My grandmother goes there. And I go, oh, that's awesome. Well, you look like you're a teenager. We've not met. What is your name? She says, well, my name is Lacey. And I'm like, I do know you. <laughs> and I said, but we've never met. I said, could you do me a favor? And she says, what's that? I said, could you come to class this, Wednesday, this Sunday morning? She goes, well, I often don't get to class. And I said, I know, but could you just come this Sunday? And let me just warn you in advance what's going to happen when you're there. <laughs> and so she showed up in class. She sat down. I called the roll. And I go, okay, uh, Lacey. And everybody goes, oh, come on. Just take her name off the roll. We want donuts. It gets really quiet. And she says, here. <laughs> and it got very, very quiet. And they were like, it's you. You are real. And she came to True North for several weeks. She had uh, some family members that were ill and was tending to them and helping to care for them. She came pretty regularly for a while. And then I did not see her for a long, long time. 2019, the Spirit of God really laid her on my heart. It was just out of the blue because it had been 12 years, at that time 10 years, a decade before. And so I texted and I said, I had, I had two numbers for her. And I said, Lacey, is this the Lacey that used to go to North Boulevard? This is Skid from North Boulevard. And you, the, the Spirit of God put you on my heart today. And the response I got back was, you have the wrong number. And if you contact me again, I will report you to the police for harassment. I have the screenshot of the text on my phone, no lie. And I just said, sorry, and I thought, I'm not going to reach out. Reached out to the other number a little more reluctantly, and somebody said, wrong number. And I thought, I, 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 don't even, I didn't remember at the time who her uh, grandmother was. I didn't remember the connection. I did not know people that knew who she was, and I lost track. And I thought about passages like this, wondering, where is she? And we have, you know, hundreds of students that are coming every week but there's every name on this role that is important. And I thought about 2 Timothy 2 and verse 22. Now, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Now, if I were to ask students, which I often do, what's the most important phrase of this verse? They most often will say, uh, I guess, call on the Lord. That's probably important because it's got the Lord in it. That's important, but that's not going to happen first. That, that's not the most important. Well, then it's got to be maybe a pure heart. Nope, not the most important. Oh, it's got to be flee the evil desires of, nope. Well, then it's got to be pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace. No. All of those are important, but I would argue that none of those things in that verse happen until this happens. I'll take everything else, and church, let's just say these three words together, along with those. 
the, the fleeing evil desires likely will not happen unless you are fleeing along with those. The pursuing faith and love and peace and righteousness is probably not going to happen unless you are doing it along with those. Calling on the Lord becomes difficult unless you have of those that you are along with. Now, forgive me, college students, for looking here because there's just so many of you here, but you're all over the room. And I'd be remiss if I said I'm not just talking to those on a new college campus or, or those in a new high school or those at a new middle school, but I'm talking to those of you that work at Nissan, those of you that, 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 that work uh, at maintaining your home, those of you that are raising children, those of you that work somewhere else in an office or a cubicle. If you don't have a those, it's going to be incredibly difficult to swim against the culture. Uh, Leonard um, Sweet in his book 11, the indispensable, 11 Indispensable Relationships That Every Person Needs, talks about this idea of, of a witness, that we are, have a great cloud of witnesses that cheer us on. But he coined a term that I like, it's the word withness, withness. And then he says, let's call them withnesses, because they're not just people that, that witness along with us or see things, they're people that experience this with us. They are our those. Now, I'm not just talking about classmates or teammates or people that ride your bus or that sit at your table or at your third period class or that sit in the cubicle across from you. No, no. These are people that are with you, and they're with you to stand against the, uh, the, the culture. So when you think about famous those, Let's just think about famous trios, because today we're going to talk about a pretty famous trio. Let's think about famous trios. Some immediately come to mind. And if I said, who are three people that you can't name one without naming the other? Right? I mean, these are all characters that you, you can't just say snap without crackle and pop. Or you can't say Huey without Dewey and Louie. Right? You think about there's always, these people are always seen together. These are the, the three, you know, you know the chipmunks, the three that sing in really high-pitched, annoying voices, or maybe same, same difference here, but... You can't think of one without the other. I mean, cartoons and movies, it's almost always three buddies, three pals, three friends on some big adventure together. And there's three of them that if it had just been one of them, they likely wouldn't be successful. But when I was a kid, these were some of my favorite trios. These are all people that go together. But then there's some kids in the room that probably recognize these three. Now, how, how many of you recognize these three characters? Now, you may know uh, Larry and you may know Bob, but they're playing characters right here. They're playing Rack, Shack, and Benny. How many of you ever had Rack, Shack, and Benny play in, in, your, in your minivan or in your room, right? The VeggieTales, they take popular Bible stories and they, they put them to music and, and put a modern spin on them. And so this is a, a trio that uh, we're going to get to in just a minute. But I just want to give you a quick little quiz. Now, don't, don't be offended if you don't know the answers to this. First service did very well. You just fill in the blank. Noah and the... Okay, very good. Joseph and his, okay, coat of many colors. David, be careful here. David and, yeah, very good, okay. Uh, that could have gone very differently. Jonah and the, okay. Uh, Daniel in the, all right, nice. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the, okay, see, we could all just go home right now. You, you, you say, I passed the test. I know it. I got the Bible. There's nothing you can tell me that I don't know. You passed the test, or did you? Or did you? More on that just a little bit later. You meet three guys in the book of Daniel. Now, for all practical purposes, we'll just say that they found themselves on an entirely new college campus. Hananiah, Misael, Azariah, teenagers, they're smart, they're intelligent, good-looking, they're the brightest of the brightest, 
But we know that these guys, I mean, we know they existed. Here in, here's Babylon. This is an artist rendering of, of what ancient Babylon would have looked like. Here are the ruins of Babylon that still exist today in, in modern Iraq. And this right here is one of Saddam Hussein's palaces, former palaces, right there on the ruins of Babylon. These places existed. These aren't just myths or stories. They're not just veggie tales. These are real things that really happen with real people. These pots were discovered years ago, and these cuneiform tablets uh, write uh, details about transactions between Jews and Babylonians and, and different agreements and trades and things that were made. All of these on display in a, a, a Jewish Bible museum to show us that these things are real. These stories are real. And we can put our faith in these stories. Jeremiah writes a letter to the exiles. Now an exile is simply a person who's been taken from a place that they know very well and has been transported to a place that they don't know so well. That's, that's almost all of you who are college students. Some of you may live in town, but for some of you, you're on your own for the very first time. Your mom and dad may be here at church with you, but I remember very fondly watching the, the taillights of our large station wagon turn the corner. It was a very long station wagon, so it took a long time for it to turn that corner. But when it turned the corner in Memphis, I realized I've got to feed myself tonight. I've got to wash these clothes that I'm wearing. I, I've got to go and, and, and pay for things on my own. And I've got to get myself up and go to class. I don't know that I'm ready for this. I found myself like an exile. Uh, Jeremiah writes a letter to the exiles. He didn't put these nice headings in, but this is a letter to the exiles. Now, these parts of the story you're familiar with. He says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and I will fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. 70 years is a long time. It's right after this that he gives the verse that's often taken out of context. You all know this one, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. But this is after 70 years of captivity. We put this verse on senior Sunday brochures and on posters and bookmarks, but, but God is saying, you're going to have to go through 70 really tough years, but, but trust me, I am in control. We pick up the story in Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar makes an image of gold it's very, very tall. He gets all these officials together, and he tells all of them, I want you to assemble all of the people. We're going to dedicate this image, and I want everybody to come and get, uh, get before this image. So then the herald loudly proclaims, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of all of these musical instruments, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. This isn't the kind of story you really expect to, to talk about with little kids. But yet, so many of us have these on our fridges or in our scrapbooks, right? Everybody has made some clever Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego craft. They're everywhere. I'm sure Amy's got a whole long list of them. And it's like, this is a terrifying story. And yet we tell this story to our children. We pick up the story in verse 7. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the, all the instruments, they went, the people, they all fell down. At this time, some astrologers come forward and they denounce the Jews. Here's what they say. King, we want you to live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of all those instruments must fall down, and if they don't, we know what's going to happen to them. I'm just trying to kind of skim for the sake of time. But there are some who you've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image you've set up. And you say, wait a minute, you just gave us three other names. These three names are different. Now, most Bible students would know that these are the same people. They have different names. But let's dig just a little bit deeper. But first, I want to share with you a book 
by David Kinnaman and Mark Matlock. It's called Faith for Exiles, Five Ways for a New Generation to Follow Jesus in a Digital Babylon. Now coming up, I'm going to show you a very complex chart with a lot of words, and I'm just going to let you take a picture of it. Don't try to read it. It's actually very small print. It's very hard to get it to appear on the screen, but it'll make enough sense to you. He says in this generation, this generation represented by a lot of you all right here, not picking on you, but there's, if we had all of you stand up, we would say, let's break you down. We know that there's 22% of this generation that are prodigals or ex-Christians, probably not the people in this room. These are folks that have walked away from it. And there are some of us in the room that just even seeing this is painful because one, you think that's my child or you think that was me. Then he says there are 30% who are nomads. These are lapsed Christians. They're probably going to come back when they have kids, when they're married, and they realize, I can't do this alone. I'm going to need people to help me raise my kids. They're probably going to show back up. They're lapsed Christians or nomads. 38 are habitual churchgoers. You're like, that's what we want. That's what I want. I want my child to be a habitual churchgoer. But Kinnaman and Matlock say, you know, this is good, but this is just somebody who's showing up once a week and just kind of clocking in and saying, I'm just kind of going through the motions. Not bad. It's a good start. But he said there's only 10% that are resilient disciples. Now, if we had all of you stand up, all the college students, and I just said, would all of you but the 10% who are resilient disciples sit down? Would you even know what to do? What is a resilient disciple? Now, this is the complex chart. I'll tell you when you should take a picture of it. But he says, okay, we're going to look at all of these these, uh, resilient disciples in the area of experiencing Jesus. I know it's very difficult to to see up on the screen. And so they say things like 89% say my relationship with Jesus brings me deep joy and satisfaction. And you can see other things that they say about their experience of Jesus. Habitual churchgoers wouldn't say this, but resilient disciples do. Then in the area of cultural discernment, 86%, the Bible teaching I receive in my church is relevant to my life. 86% of resilient disciples say that. Or what about meaningful relationships? The church is a place where I feel like I really belong. 88% of this 10% say this. Okay, we're coming up on the the completion of the chart. A countercultural mission. I want others to see Jesus reflected in me through my words and actions. There you go. Uh, You look at some of the other things they say. This is what these 10% say. And then when it comes to vocational discipleship, I want to use my unique talents and gifts to honor God. 94% say that's what I want to be about. Now, if you want to take a picture of this screen, you can peruse it later, zoom in on it. I know it's difficult to see. You can go get the book. But I just want you to see this is the 10%. Kenneman and Matlock say only 10% of this generation would say these things. 10%. Of these students in this pew, of these pews would say this, 10% of you, 10% of the people in this room, that it really matters. And so I have to challenge you, are there some? Because we look at the world and we see uh, kids and teens falling away from faith at alarming numbers, but there are some along with those. So Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, they show up on a new campus. I'm not making light of it, but I mean, literally, they're going to be educated. It's like it's student Sunday for them, and they show up, and they've got a name tag like many of you do. And I called some of you by name because you had a name tag. And so when you've got uh, your name tag, it's kind of lets you know who you are. But for just a second, let's think about Toy Story. Remember Buzz Lightyear? He had a name tag, but it was not just his name, but it was the person who loved him the most, wrote his name on his soul, pun intended. There's uh, Andy's name on Buzz's shoe. Uh, He writes it also, his name on on, uh, the boot that Cowboy Woody has. 
And then when Woody gets taken at a yard sale and is going to be sold to a collector, the very first thing they do, uh, they, they, they fix him all up and they, 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 they paint him up, they sew him up. And then the final act is that they paint over his identity so that no one will know who he belongs to and hopefully that he will even forget to whom he belongs. So let's look at the name. Daniel shows up. Daniel, his name, even if you break it down, El, Elohim, El, the word of God, the name of God is in his very name. Look at these other guys, Hananiah and Azariah. You have part of the name of God is a part of their name. So whenever they say their names, they are breathing the name of God. But then Daniel is given a new name because his name means the God of Israel is my judge. So let's give you a new name, Belteshazzar, and that's going to be may a demon protect my life. Or some translations would say may the lady protect the king. They're going to feminize his name so that he now feels a little bit weaker and a little bit less strong. But he's going to be given a new identity. It's the first thing that's going to happen to you when you walk on a college campus is a lot of people are going to be trying to redefine you from a, a name that comes from God to an identity that comes from man. Hananiah's name means the God of Israel has been gracious to me. But then he's given the name Shadrach, which means I am afraid of a God uh, of Babylon. I'm afraid. So now it's, it goes from gratitude to now you have an identity of fear. He's just swapping name tags so that every time he hears his name, he's going to be thinking, I I am fear. I am afraid. Misael, who can compare to my God? He's given the name Meshach, which means I'm despised, humiliated, and worthy of contempt when compared to this Babylonian God. Most of their names were tied to Babylonian God's names. We're not just giving you a new name. We're going to give you a new God. So now there's no more confidence. Now it's cowardice. And then finally, Azariah, I am the one the Lord helps, is what his name means. But Abednego, I'm a slave of Nago or Nabo, one of the Babylonian gods. And so now you go from being a son to being a slave. It's all about changing your identity. And so when this begins to happen, um, I want to show you what it looks like for a, a typical student. I've got one of our students, Luke, come on up here, Luke. Luke's going to represent a high school student, middle school student. He could represent a college student. He could also represent anybody in this pew of any age, whether you went to school in the late 1900s or not. Here is Luke. And so Luke shows up, and he's going to get a name tag. And right now it says that you're a middle dad. That's nice. Good for you. Um, he's going to show up on a new campus, and yet there's going to be a lot of competing voices. But here, so church, if you've been here at North Boulevard, you've raised your kids starting from the nursery all the way up. We talked about this last week, Amy. Let's get Sam Bagwell. Sam, would you come on up here? We've trained our students to hear the voice of God because one day they're no longer going to be able to hear mom and dad say, you should do this and this is what you are. And I talked to several parents, some of them I see in here, who said, my kid got out, they walked to their dorm, and I called them over to the window, rolled the window down, and I said those things that I said to them every time I dropped them off at school. I said to my daughter, Annabelle, when we dropped her off at Lipscomb a couple years ago, before we left, I gave her a big hug, and I told her what Andy says to Opie every day before she walked away. I said, you act like somebody. It's my one last time to say it. But what do I really want her to hear? I want her to hear the voice of God who says to him, you are my child, I love you, and you are mine. If you're the voice of God, and I'm not trying to put Sam on an on a unneeded pedestal, but I think if we all agreed, if we needed somebody to represent the voice of God, Sam Bagwell is a pretty good choice. So Sam, would you just say those words to him? You are my child. I love you. You are mine. That's just comforting for him to hear, even though it's a role play. And just hearing it, you're like, oh, I wish Sam would turn and say that to me. Because just to hear Sam say it with that golden voice would be so comforting. 
The problem is there are other voices. I've got eight other voices. Would you guys come up quickly? Eight other voices that are so ready to surround you and you and the college students that stood up there. Oh, they'll show up. And as soon as God tries to say, You are my child. I love you. You are mine. There's a voice that is right there ready to whisper in his ear and say this. Does God really say that? Did God really say that? Hey, it's the very first lie Satan tells. If you look in the very first pages of your Bible, the first thing he does, the first words out of his mouth to Adam and Eve, did God really mean what he said? And it's the lie that he's never stopped using. Because God is trying to say, You are my child. I love you. You are mine. But then that voice begins to whisper, You are my child. Did God really say that? Now, he continues to say all of these things, but then this voice, it doesn't stop. This voice never stops. But then we have another lie. The other lie steps up when he says, now wait a minute. You know, I know I'm God's child, but did God really mean that? And then a second lie creeps in, and that one is this. Oh, man. And when this one begins to happen, he begins to question, am I really God's child? But then it's another lie that shows up when all of his friends go, hey, Luke, we're all going to head out and go do this. Why don't you go and do this? And he's on a college campus, and he thinks, my mom and dad are never going to find out. I'm by myself for the first time, and he hears this voice. It's not that big of a deal. Oh, yeah. Okay, maybe it's not that big of a deal. Now, church, has he stopped talking? No, but his ability to hear him is getting much more difficult because once he hears those three lies, then he says, you know what, I'm going to go and do the thing that maybe, because it's not that big of a deal until he hears this one. Oh, now, wait a minute. You, you just told me it wasn't that big of a deal, and now I'm doing this, and you said God won't forgive that. What's going on? Now, I realize this is getting really uncomfortable. One, because it's just loud and it's chaos. And somebody's like, this is not decently in an order, Skid. You've got to be you're treading on some really thin ground here. But he says God won't forgive that. Then there's another lie, because after he does the thing, another voice says this. No one needs to know. Because for a moment, Luke says, wait, maybe I remember way back when I was God's child, and maybe I've got to tell somebody I really need to find some accountability. But he hears this lie, nobody needs to know. And then the other one shows up. It's the next lie that says this. You're the only one. Yeah, the reason you don't want to tell anybody is because, Luke, you're the only person that's going through this. You're the only person that's being tempted by this. And so here, continue with these lies until we hear this one. You cannot tell the truth. Oh, Luke may be tempted to go and say, I've just got to confess to somebody because I still hear this echo of a time that I was God's child. But then, no, 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 you can't tell the truth because if you do, Luke, everybody's going to be disappointed in you. And it's the final lie that when Luke says, well, then who am I? And he hears this one. Luke, all these things that you said you would never do that weren't that big of a deal, they turns out they are a big deal. God's never going to forget it. You're the only one. You can't tell anybody, and your past will define you. I'm going to take that name tag off because this is now who you are. So, church, he's never stopped. But you're like, we get it, Skid. Make it stop. I can guarantee you there's students sitting here and students sitting here and people in this room that are going through this right now every hour when we're not in this auditorium, and they want it to stop as well. So how do we get it to stop? We begin to... We show up for worship, and when we show up for worship, maybe one of those voices gets a little bit quieter. It doesn't stop, but then we sit and we open the Word of God, and when we open the Word of God, maybe another voice begins to get a little silent. Then we get an accountability group around us, and we say, I'm going to start sharing with some people what's going on with, 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 with me in my life. Then we begin to pray, and we spend time really talking to God in prayer, and we begin, now we still hear those voices, but they're getting a little bit quieter. 
then maybe we get into a, a program like Celebrate Recovery or some other support group. And when we do that, then we have these voices that, that, that are still getting turned down. But he's still living with like, I, I can't hear what's going on there because of all of this until he begins to open God's word, not just on a Sunday morning, because he's not just a habitual churchgoer. He wants to be a resilient disciple. Then he begins to share what he is sharing with other people. And so now you got two voices. Your past will define you and a God who says, I love you right now, forever and for always. And when he finally begins to realize that, all of those voices get turned down. And then when he is really quiet. I love you. You are mine. That's what he hears. I love you. But it takes a whole lot. You see, just the, 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 when, when those voices get quiet, it just makes us all feel better. But I want to tell you, for 25 years of ministry, I have two st students that come in, and they can't hear me when I say this. They can't hear you when you say this. They can't hear when somebody here says this because this is all they are hearing. You're my child. I love you. You are mine. And so, that's your name tag. And the world's going to try to give you these name tags. And you can't listen to them. I'm going to let these folks go and have a seat. I want you to have two of the guys stay with you. Everybody else can have a seat. Let's give them a hand. Sam, thank you very much. So, so now, I know I'm mixing metaphors. Now these guys are no longer lies that are whispering in his ear. Now they're, they're some of his those. And I happen to know that these are two of Luke's those. They're the ones that are going to help him scrape off everything that has painted over his identity and say, this is really who loves you the most. So furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summons them, and he says to them, uh, hey, I hear, is this true that you're not going to bow down? Is this true? And when you were told, when you heard the sound of all the music that you were supposed to be, now you're going to be thrown into a blazing furnace? Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? So here's the moment when we have this cool moment. I don't know how it went down, but let's imagine for a second the three of them got together beforehand and said, hey, we, we got to... Um, we're going to go before the golden statue. we got to know what to do here. Uh, what, what are we going to do? Somebody goes, well, we, we better bow down or we'll die. No, we can't do that. Well, maybe we just act like we're tying our shoes. And we'll just kind of halfway go and tie our shoes. And then be like, oh, we didn't realize. And there's got to be a way out. No, we, we cannot bow down. I don't know whose idea it was. I don't know if all of them agreed or if one of them said, guys, we've got to stand firm. But I can almost guarantee you this. It would not have happened had it just been one of them. I don't know that. There's plenty of people in Scripture that stood up on their own. But for these three guys, where they were, I just can't believe that it would have happened had there not been a those. And so they go before the king and they say, King, they elect him as a spokesperson. Hey, you speak for us. And he goes, King, we don't need to defend ourselves. And the other guys in the back are like, yeah, tell him. If we're thrown into a blazing furnace, the God we serve will be able to deliver us from it. And there's somebody back there going, yes, amen. Praise God. But he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. And they're like, yes, tell him, tell him. But even if he does not, there had to be one of those guys in the back say, whoa, whoa, time out. All right, let's have a powwow here. Can we have a sidebar? I, we didn't go over this. What's this even if he does not business? We want you to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gods that you have set up. Now, what we expect to happen is Nebuchadnezzar to go, wow, these guys are principled. They're character. They stood up in the midst. These guys are awesome. They're who we thought they were. No furnace for you guys, but we know that's not exactly what happens. They get thrown into the furnace. And when they're thrown into the furnace, the guys throwing them in, they die, and, and there they are. The speech that we wanted was that once they stood up, things were going to be okay. That's bad math. 
bad math says you have faith in God and God loves you, then that's going to equal an easy life. That's not exactly true. And there's a story on every pew that lets you know that that's not the way it always plays out. There's no promise in Scripture that links your faith to an absence of difficulty. But there are hundreds of promises that link your faith to the presence of God in the fire. He says, I'm going to come and stand in the fire with you. Even Nebuchadnezzar takes notice. And he says, hey, wait a minute. He says, didn't we take these guys that wouldn't bow down? We, we, we have this image that I didn't have a flannel board big enough to recreate this for you all this morning. But this is the way I first heard this story. And so I have to ask the question, what exactly is worship? Because these guys say, we're not going to bow down. Listen very carefully and really quickly to the folks that are sitting here. When, when I was growing up, no fault of the church I grew up in. I love my home church. I just kind of grew up with an understanding that this was worship. This is a random bulletin from a random church. It's not the one I grew up in. I just pulled it off the internet. But I, I just thought this is worship. That's worship. As a matter of fact, I, I, this is when worship happens. And this is where it happens. And it's an hour on Sunday. For me, it was an hour on Sunday night and an hour on Wednesday. And if I didn't have that, I probably wouldn't be standing before you now. I'm deeply thankful for that. But for me, that was worship. But the best definition I've ever been given is this one. And students here may want to take a picture of this because you're going to need to file this one away. Worship is not 30, 40 minutes on a Sunday morning. Worship is a conviction that shapes all of life's choices so as to declare to everyone who might be aware that God is your ultimate good and what he gives you matters more than anything that you might define as essential for meaningful life. So you worship on a Friday night when your friends say, hey, we're all going to go see this movie, and you say, I I don't know that I can go and do that. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. You do that when there's some other temptation in front of you and you say, you know what, I can't go that path. Because, why not? Because Jesus is Lord. And it's extremely difficult, very difficult, if there's not a those for you to go along with. Let's make this definition more simple. You worship God every time you act differently because of what God has done for you. Not when you sing a song on a Sunday morning, as encouraging as that is. This is just the huddle. But worship takes place when you leave, and that's when the game begins. So how do you get these, all, these lies to be silenced? You guys, um, you guys can have a seat. Thank you very much. What do we do that will silence these lies? It's not just teenagers that hear them. Now, they hear them loud, and those voices get really, really loud. We do that with a very simple name of Jesus. Let me illustrate it for you this way. Um, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are there in the furnace, they, they are remembering their playlist. They've got verses that say, but now this is what the Lord says. All the lies are saying this, but this is what the Lord says. He says, I have summoned you by name. You are mine. Does that sound familiar? We just heard it over here. I've written my name on you. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they'll not sweep over you. Check this out. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. You have to believe that somebody was quoting that song as they stepped into the furnace. They're like, guys, remember the story in which, we, in which we've lived our entire lives. We're going to be in the furnace, and God's going to rescue us. But even if he does not, we're not going to bow down. Because our identity, the one who loves us more than anything else, has written his name on us. And so we now have to go back to, to this challenge. Beware of trying to fit into any group where the price of admission is acting as though the things of God mean nothing to you. And it's going to happen time and time again. The king then leaps to his feet and he says, wait, weren't there three men that were tied up and we threw into the fire? Yes, your majesty. But look, I see four of them. And the fourth one is like a son of the gods. 
Then the king shows up and he gives the speech after the furnace that we hoped he would give before the furnace. He goes, guys, come out of there. He brings them out and there's no smell of smoke. And he says, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted him. They defied the king's command. They were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. And then he says this, for no other god can save in this way. That was the speech they wanted on the front end of the furnace. So church, we have to go back to our test now. Because you got the story right. You knew what you thought were the main character and the main object of that character's story. But your testimony is not about an ark or a coat or a den of lions or a furnace. Your story, your testimony is a story in which God is one of the main characters. So let's fill in the blanks again. Noah and the promise of God. Or Joseph and his trust in God. David and the strength of God. Jonah and the great God. Daniel in the hands of God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the deliverance of God. God's the main character in the story. You passed the test. It was kind of a trick question. But we're so tempted to make the story about us and our identity about us and not in those whose name we wear. So I'll leave you with this. How do we silence these lies? Simply the beautiful, blessed name of Jesus. I tried to think for a long time to illustrate this because I've known for several weeks I was going to be teaching on this Sunday. And how do I describe that? And it was on August the 2nd that a story was told to me by Mike Jones. And I thought, that's it, Mike. You just gave me, you, you, you just did it. Mike's a huge baseball fan, a huge Dodger fan. And on August the 2nd of this year, the world lost Ben Scully. His name was Vincent shortened it to Vince, but he couldn't say Vince Scully on the air because it sounded like a lisp, and so he just shortened it to Vin. Most of you that know anything about sports know what it's like to tune in to a Dodger game and hear Vince Scully wish you a very pleasant good evening wherever you may be. He, he uh, called Dodger games for almost 67 years, from 1950 when he started at 22 years of age to 2016 when he retired, and he passed away at the age of 94 on August the 2nd. The Dodgers moved to L.A. in 1958, and they played in the Coliseum. I didn't know that until just this week. They played initially in the Coliseum. Huge. Instead of 30,000 at a baseball game, they can now hold uh, uh, like 90,000 would be at a game. And you're sitting so far away, you literally can't see what's going on. But thankfully, the world had a brand new invention, the transistor radio, that in 1958 was just becoming mainstream, and everybody in the stands had one, and they would all listen to the games. Mike says even later on in Vin Scully's career, you'd go to a Dodger game, you could not walk from your seat to the bathroom, you wouldn't miss a call of the game because everybody had the radio on, and you could hear the whole game all the way through the stadium. In 1958, Vin Scully, um, was, it was a game that was happening in the late 50s, and Vin said, I knew that on that night, the umpire, Frank Sicori, it was his birthday. And he thought, I want to just try a little experiment. So he said to everybody listening, hey, I, I understand that a lot of you are listening on these newfangled transistor radios. So how about when I give the signal, you all shout, happy birthday, Frank, because that's his birthday. Ben said, I could have embarrassed myself because I had no idea if it would work. But he gave the signal, and then almost 75,000 people yell out in unison, happy birthday, Frank. The umpire has to call a break during the game. He's so stunned. He has no idea that nobody knows it's his birthday, let alone all the people there in the stadium. And Ben Scully said, I then realized that, wow, people were listening and they were ready to go. So I want to try something that I'm not sure if it's going to work. But we'll just try something as we kind of wrap up. I want to illustrate this in one final way. Some of you here, uh, you may know who you are. 
Let's try something. One, two, three. Now the rest of you are confused, and before you say, wait a minute, I believe that too, why am I still sitting? You need to know, this is very exciting because I had no idea. You all stay standing for just a moment. If, if you're so inclined. I put these, there's about a hundred of these sprinkled throughout the, the, uh, the auditorium that say, please open and read this card before today's sermon. We stuck them, most of them, in the Bibles in your pew. I asked several people, do you think people are going to open it and read it? And if you read it, what would you do? And several people said, well, it tells you that after the end of the sermon, I'm going to count to three, you're going to stand up and say, Jesus is Lord. You don't have to shout, you just have to stand up and say it. If you're not up to this challenge, you can hand it to somebody else or you can ask somebody to say it with you. I'm just really curious. Is there anybody here who thought that you might be the only person standing up? Even though I mentioned in the card, you will not be the only person. There's at least four hands that said, how many of you worried about it the whole sermon? The whole sermon, you're like, I don't know that I can do this. I don't want to be the only person to stand up and do this. This is going to be terrifying. But then... You followed the instructions, and you stood up, and you did it anyway. Now, you're only going to be standing for a few more seconds. But I want to ask you this question, church. Some of you, it was a little nerve-wracking. It was out of your comfort zone. If it is difficult on a Sunday morning in the presence of a church, surrounded by people who are gathered for the very purpose of saying Jesus is Lord, if it's nerve-wracking to do it then, can you imagine how difficult it is for these students when they walk into a college campus where nobody is interested in that and they are going to be the only one standing they feel when they stand up unless they realize, I've got of those. You realize how hard it's got to be at Oakland High School? How hard it's got to be at a private Christian school? How hard it's got to be at Nissan or at your office to stand up and say, Jesus is Lord. But when people are living those lies, when somebody stands up and says, I'm going to stand even when everyone else is down and say that Jesus is Lord, it's not long before other people say, I'll stand with you. Church, before we close, can I invite you to quietly stand? Just stand up where you are. Because today's story and today's sermon doesn't quite just end right here. It has a really pretty exciting ending. About two weeks ago, I was eating at Slick Pig with my family, and I met the, gave my order, went and sat down. My wife comes over, and she says, hey, the girl up at the counter uh, said that she recognized you. Were you a teacher? Like, who, who does she think you are? I'm like, I don't know. I, I didn't recognize her. I, when I saw her, I didn't really pay attention. I asked Sherry, the lady that works her, I said, Sherry, who, who was, who's up at the counter? She goes, well, she's only been here a couple of weeks. Her name is Lacey. And I said, is her name Lacey Reed? She goes, I don't know her last name. She's only been here a couple of weeks. I went up there, I walked up, and I looked at her, and I saw those eyes of now a 27-year-old. I saw the eyes of a 16-year-old that looked back, and she says, hello, Mr. Skidmore. And I said, Lacey Reed, do you realize that I have wondered what happened to you for 12 years? And she said, yeah, um, things got pretty tough. And she said, I, I kind of believe some things about me that I shouldn't. And I started naming some of these lies. This one, this one, this one. She was like, yep, yep, yep. Like, how do you know? I said, because that's what we're talking about Sunday morning. She said, well, you need to know that I'm now two years sober. I said, praise the Lord. She's got two kids and one on the way. And I said, Lacey, um, it is so good to see you again. She said, would you come back up here after the service, after, I mean, after you eat, and would you come back up here when the line goes down? I said, sure. So we finished eating. I went up there, and I said, Lacey, uh, you had a question? She said, yeah. She says, my grandmother, Virginia Puckett, has been bringing me to church my whole life. And she goes, I don't think that running into your family is an accident. And she said, if I came to church this Sunday, would you baptize me into Jesus? And I said, oh yeah, we'll do that. 
Um, I've not seen where she is today. Lacey, are you in the room somewhere? Where, where's Lacey? She's up there. There she is, right up there. So we started, we started going over some of those lies, and I said, Lacey, this is what we're talking about Sunday, and we're going to put the baptism at the end of the service. Because what's going to happen at the end of the service is a few people have stood up to say Jesus is Lord, and then a whole lot of people will stand up to say Jesus is Lord, and then we're going to sing about the one name that will silence every lie, and then you'll get an opportunity to stand alone and say that Jesus is Lord. So we look forward to celebrating with her and one other student in just a moment, church, while we sing.